Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world. One of the scary things going on in recent years has been a dramatic rightward shift at the state government level, leading to all kinds of laws and actions to astound the compassionate observer. At the same time, there has arisen what are sometimes called identity politics that fly in the face of many of the prejudices which are manifested in state laws. So, for example, at the same time that majorities across the country champion the broad swath of LGBTQ people and rights, you have places like North Carolina seeking to pillory, shame, and criminalize attitudes that don't match the conservative norm, as demonstrated in the hotly debated bathroom bill there. We're headed now to North Carolina to speak with Liam Michael Hooper, trans dude and compassionate and spiritual activist bearing the title of Minister of Welcome and Beyond of the Parkway United Church of Christ in Winston-Salem. Liam Hooper joins us by phone. Liam, thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Again, we're brought together by our common friend, Peterson Toscano. I've interviewed him a couple different times, and now every three months he sits in for me as host for Spirit in Action about climate change. I think he was down there just the beginning of April, and there was a presentation the two of you gave called Adam, Eve, and the Other Ethiopian Eunuch. Which part of that were you doing, or was this a bounce back and forth? How did you do that with Peterson? What Pierce and I did was something we had sort of been tossing around as an idea since we came to know each other and my work has evolved. And so we created this forum whereby each of us would present a six to eight minute quasi-lecture discussion of a topic. And I did Adam and Eve and the creation story. And Peterson did the other Ethiopian eunuch from Jeremiah, Evan Melech, who actually saved Jeremiah from the pit. So one of us would present in the forum and then come and sit back down next to the other, and the other would ask questions that we had tossed around at least an idea of where we were going to go with that. And then the other would present and we would ask questions, and then we left some time for the people in attendance to ask us questions about these texts and these stories and our sort of interrogation of those stories from a rather, what you might think of as as queer theology, look into those stories and what they might mean for us. 
Now, back when I was a teen growing up, there was this insult that would be traded back and forth. Oh, you're queer. And, of course, you know, in the same way that I think gays took a word that was off-putting and said, no, we proudly wear this, queer has been adopted by a number of people. How would you define queer in terms of its current usage? I'm glad you asked that question, actually. I get that a lot. And what's fascinating to me about that is our... I think the term most people use is community, but we're not really a community. We're a population of LGBTQ folks who have small pockets of communities, right? So, But our sort of movement toward liberation has reclaimed the word queer at least three times since I've been alive, and I'm over 50. So I imagine there was some time that I'm unaware of that we reclaimed that word as well. And so when I use it, I use it both in the academic sense of what's come to be known at the academic level in universities as queer theory. So in terms of academic interrogation of sociopolitical and cultural processes and analytic interrogation of those processes through the lens of gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender persons. And so in one sense, I use queer in that very theoretical way. But at the same time, I think I and and many people in the movement use the term queer to refer to anything that's not straight and narrow, so to speak. So any politic that is outside of the rather compressive and restrictive creation of norms and deviance is queer theory. Or any sexuality or understanding of bodiedness that is outside of the status quo of acceptable ways for bodies to be in the world is queer. So that would include sexualities and genders and self-understanding and identity that doesn't fall into what we're all taught is normalcy versus deviance. And so I think queer has then a lot of layers. Anything other than there's A and B and A inserts in B, and that's it. (laughs) Exactly, yes. (laughs) Yes, well said. Yeah, you know, you can think of even people who have varying levels of ability have started claiming sort of a queer theoretic, right, or a queer analysis because they recognize that their bodies are seen by the holders of the status quo as deviant or abnormal or anomalous in some way. So there's even that layer, I think, of just interrogating how we think about bodies and persons and politics and culture from the perspective of the outsider, the person on the margin who doesn't fit in the nice, neat, square hole, you know. I actually have a couple good friends. One of them was a Peace Corps volunteer at the same time I was in Togo, West Africa. That person now is Petra. But I got to know Petra before as a Peace Corps volunteer, before there was any outward transition, at least. And the other person was co-owner of the business I founded when I moved up to Eau Claire. And Ava didn't make the transition, didn't fully accept, the, I guess, the transition until near the age of 60, which is a lot of years when you've already got four kids and everything else. Indeed. <laughs> so in some ways... One might think that I have some understanding of this, but I have to admit that I still feel pretty clueless. I think I'm pretty much an A 
you know, that, that goes A and starts to B and stuff. I'm, I, I'm pretty much of an A, and I've really tried to query myself and see what part of myself I've denied. So I'd say that inside somewhere, there's just not been a well-ranging sense of myself that allows me to fully inhabit. So first of all, I'll say up front is, though I certainly intend no offense to anyone, I admit my own limitations there, and so I'm likely to say something awkward. So I'll just put that out there up front, and no one should feel hesitant to ever correct me because, you know, i got to learn. Indeed, as do we all, and I appreciate you saying that because I think that that's actually probably the thing that makes you an excellent ally to those of us who are different because the first line of acceptance that the world isn't necessarily the neat little package we've been told that it is, is our ability to reach into our own unknowing in a way that opens us to new possibilities and new relationships and new ways of looking at the world. And I think that's the thing that frightens people the most. So I would commend you for doing that because once we can see what we don't know, then we can reach into our unknowing in a way that opens us to knowing different narratives and knowing different perspectives and different persons. And it's only from our unknowing that we can do that and acknowledging those places where we don't feel like we have all the answers and that we might not even know what the questions are. And I think, I really do believe that's the thing that frightens most people the most is bumping up against there's a thing I don't know and not feeling comfortable with unknowing. And so I, I just would commend you for saying up front, you know, you're still learning, as are we all. I'm a trans guy, right? But I'm not the knower of all things trans. <laughs> what? Oh, I got the wrong person on the show? <laughs> you did. You better call somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, since you give me that permission, Liam, and folks, we are speaking with Liam Hooper, who actually lives in the Deep South. This is North Carolina we're speaking to, although that's not his state of origin. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. The thing I want to ask, and you just said it, you know, you're a trans guy. The fact that you can say you're a trans guy means that there's this thing called guy and probably there's this thing called girl, female, male, female. There's something like that. So that means at least for some uses, it's useful to talk about male and female, even though we're probably all on this these gradations of sexuality, of identity, of gender. Uh, so when you say, Liam, that you're a trans guy, what does that mean? Does that mean that there is some kind of a binary that's at least somewhat useful in terms of reference? What does that mean? Well, you know, that's a question that I ask myself on a rather daily basis. <laughs> I don't mean to be smart-alecky. It's just, you know, it's the truth, right? So I think if only in terms of our need for language and our need to differentiate and identify things, I mean, we have a need to do that, and part of our need to do that is so that we can communicate. From that perspective, there certainly is this binary. It inherited language that we've had for centuries, even though those words, male and female, mean different things and have meant different things throughout history and across culture, and they still do. There's still enough sort of cohesion in our collective understanding of what those words mean that if you say, you know, I'm a man, we all kind of nod our heads and have some reference for that, right? If your wife says, I'm a woman, we all go, oh, oh, okay. We, you know, we have some idea what that means, 
but they're just linguistic constructs at the same time. And yet, they're linguistic constructs that emerge in this context that we can't remove ourselves from, which is that we live in human communities where there are systems of knowledge and systems of accepted histories and systems of process and self-governance and all this stuff that all of these terms we use are embedded in. So we have this ancient idea that human beings came into being in two forms and that those forms are determined by chromosomal structure and anatomy and that we can count on them being pretty much consistently that way forever and ever on end, right? But the truth is, it's never been that way, right? So there have never been human beings that in a statistical mean always pop out exactly this way for men and exactly that way for women. It's just never been that way. In fact, scientifically we know that at a minimum, and this is true because there's some discussion still about what constitutes intersex presentation or sex between the two binaries. So depending on which numbers you look at, at least one in every 1,600 live births would be considered intersex. Then recently, after years of compiling research and sifting through stuff, Department of Endocrinology at Boston Medical Center produced a report that estimates that one in 200 people are transgender in some way. One in 200. Those are really significant numbers. It's kind of hard to ignore that, right? You, you kind of have to look at that and go, wow, first of all, and then recognize that that doesn't capture the people who, for some reason or another, don't feel comfortable self-reporting. And so we've always had this continuum of gender self-understanding and of physiological anatomy or what we would call sex, there's always been a continuum of that. But we have, for some reason, decided that this small statistical majority that appear to be exactly male or exactly female is an indisputable constant norm that is part of the natural order of the universe. And it's just really not that way. In some ways, I think, as a gender theorist, as a person who studies this stuff, I tend to think, in this country at least, we have a much more compressed and restrictive idea of gender than many ancient societies had. I think we should find out about those ancient societies at some point. But first, what I want to do is, again, you, Liam, are in North Carolina, and for the last year or so, there's been this big debate about HB2 and the bathroom bill. Yeah. And I understand, actually, that the part that was about bathroom was just one of a whole number of things in the bill. I, I could be wrong because I've never read the whole thing. Would you just go over the history of that? Because just recently, they theoretically repealed it because they were losing too much money. Groups who said, yeah. I guess we're not going to come to town. So talk about HB2, what it was, what they did, and what's there now. And a little over a year ago, sort of in the dark of night and in the back room, the North Carolina General Assembly put forth this House Bill Number 2 that would require persons to only go in restrooms that were consistent with the gender on their birth certificate. So that was problematic language just because it's kind of a misnomer in a lot of ways. And there was other problematic language, like they used terms like biological gender, which is just a huge non sequitur, right? 
because I transitioned from a gender people understood as female to one people understand as more masculine doesn't stop me from being a biological entity, right? I still have a biological sex and gender. So that language is problematic. But then they attach to it, that was the primary part of the bill, and then they attach to it restrictions on local governments and municipalities to enact wage ordinances. They limited the ability of local governments, you know, cities and other municipalities, to determine for themselves any non-discriminatory LGBTQ protective ordinances. And that was done in response to an anti-discrimination measure in Charlotte, North Carolina. The leaders in Raleigh got very upset when the city of Charlotte enacted its own anti-discrimination ordinance for the city of Charlotte. So HB2 was cobbled together in this way that limited the power on, on a lot of levels of local governments and did it all with this header about restrooms and who could enter those spaces and who could not. And it passed almost unanimously. I spent the entire day there listening to the conversations before the vote and in both parts of our General Assembly and was not at all surprised that it passed. But the Democrats were so low in number that they didn't have enough vote power that their vote would be meaningful. So they walked out. They walked out because of the lack of discussion. They, they walked out in protest. They just walked out because it was going to pass either way. And it passed both portions of the General Assembly and became law in one fell swoop in one day. And then there we were all living with it. And so basically what we saw as the problem primarily was that this bill inherently targeted certain groups of people and invited public policing of restrooms and vigilantism because it's the only way you can enforce that, right? Well, so then who are the bodies that are being targeted is the question. And what seemed abundantly clear to us is that it would be predominantly trans women who would be affected by this bill and people whose gender presentation didn't readily avail itself to discernment by onlookers. So if you had a gender presentation that in some way caused people to take a second look at you, you were liable to run afoul of a public restroom. And this applied to any buildings or institutions that received government funding. So if you've got government money, you have a public restroom, and this bill applied to you. It didn't necessarily apply to private spaces. So we all had to, you know, try to figure out how to navigate this new way of living here where trans women who were not wealthy enough to make themselves look like really pretty status quo woman-looking people were targeted in restrooms. And obviously young people, people who were in the process of transition and might be at some awkward stages, non-binary gendered people who don't necessarily appear to fit either of the two binaries of male or female would be targeted. And so there was just an enormous amount of vulnerability for people who didn't look like what we've all been taught to think a man should look like or what a woman should look like. And I think all of it originated, well, what they did was, in addition to offering up an entire group of people on the altar of deflection politics, because what they really wanted to do was control local governments as well as bodies, what they did was play on this fear-based idea 
that men dressed as women were suddenly going to be going into public restrooms and that our female children and other children and our wives and spouses and sisters were all suddenly going to be at risk for predation by these men in women's clothing, which we all know is just nonsense. It's just nonsense. It never happened, ever. (laughs) And the only people who tend to get hurt in those kinds of spaces are actually transgender people, not cisgender people. So it was a good way, though, to get people stirred up and to get them to favor this bill and stand behind it and put all their energy behind it, despite what it did to our economy and despite what it did to human bodies. And so the repeal isn't a repeal that isn't. So there are two things affecting that that I think are really significant. One is that the new law, the repeal, does indeed remove this language about restrooms. And transgender people are allowed to enter restrooms in public spaces that correspond to their gender understanding. However, all that is is a sort of weight to the show compliance with already existing federal law under Title IX and really Title VII in terms of employers and employees, and some employees are employees of the state. So all they did was just sort of get right with the federal ruling that had actually been reapplied to North Carolina, right? There had already been a circuit court ruling that HB2 was not constitutional. So all they did was just comply with federal law that they're compelled to comply with. But they did it in a way that did not explain that they had been wrong and did not begin to undo this year-long rhetoric of fear and vilification and criminalization of bodies that we'd all been living in. So, like, the damage was done. Additionally, they put a moratorium until 2020 on local governments engaging in any creation of an ordinance that would be anti-discriminatory and favor LGBTQ equal rights. So local governments still can't do anything. It's not real clear whether or not we still... So HB2 also removed your right to civil remedy. Like if you were fired or denied housing or something because you were LGBTQ in some way, you will remove the right to sue under HB2. And I'm not very clear, to tell you the truth, about whether that's been fully restored or whether the moratorium applies to that as well. And they didn't put any restrictions in place that would prevent them from extending the moratorium. So come 2020, they could extend the moratorium again, which means that no city or municipality in North Carolina can enact its own anti-discrimination measures. And again, SB2, as it's called, North Carolina's The Bathroom Bill, that's only one part of it since it's prohibiting the local municipalities from passing laws against discrimination on basis of sex or gender. This doesn't just mean transgender people. This means anyone who identifies as gay, lesbian, bisexual, or any other variation. Yes that they can't be protected. So it, it's it's much larger than just the bathroom issue. Yes, and it, it always has been. But they did it in a way that's really quite brilliant. I mean, you know, sometimes oppressive measures have a certain level of intelligence about them, whether we like to admit that or not, right? It was What they did was offer up a group of people, namely trans people and gender-expansive folks, 
who are in the media right now, it's not like there's more of us than there ever was before. It's just things are much more present than they were before our current technological age, right? So it's much more in the communal ethos and awareness that there are gender expansive people. So they took advantage of people's fear of difference and certainly of difference that implies that the world might not be quite the way that we've been taught that it is and just ran with that fear and offered up a whole group of people to be targets of that fear so that they could sneak in these other really insidious and backward-moving initiatives like the prevention of any anti-discriminatory measures by any city or county in the state of North Carolina. Oh, well. So, folks, we're speaking with Liam Hooper, who's down in North Carolina. I'm going to tell you a bit more about him later. He is Minister of Welcome and Beyond at Parkway United Church of Christ. He's a transgender guy, as he said earlier in this, and we're going to drill down on some of those on-the-ground issues in North Carolina shortly and the theology of it. But first, I want to tell you that you are listening to Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production. Website, northernspiritradio.org, and that's northern as in North Carolina, by the way, Liam. (laughs) (laughs) And on that site, you can find 11 and a half years of our programs for free listening and download. You find a place to link to our guests. So when you want to connect with Liam Michael Hooper, you go to liammichaelhooper.com. But if you can't remember all of those letters, nordenspiritradio.org will connect you up. There's more information on our site as well, as well as for all of our guests of these past almost 12 years. There's also a place to post comments, and we love two-way communication. I'm doing my part right now. Your part happens when you visit our site and do post a comment. We'd love to hear from you. There's also a place to donate, and that's how this full-time work is supported. It's not by corporations. It's not by government. It's because you, the listener, support us. Your support is crucial. It's also crucial to your local community radio stations. Local stations are so powerful in terms of offering the community a full voice. So remember, start by supporting your local community radio stations. And if you've got a few shekels left, reach out to Northern Spirit Radio and other groups and with your support. So again, we're speaking with Liam Hooper, website liammichaelhooper.com. He's in Winston-Salem area, and we're going to talk a little bit more about what that means. One of the things you said to me, Liam, in the previous conversation that we had was that you went out speaking in public. You put yourself on the line there because you are trans male. That means that the bathroom bill was targeted at you. What did you do in those committee meetings, in those places where they're talking about, here's how what we have to enforce? Well, I think one of the things that I want to say about that is that it affected me only because in my particular situation, I happened to reveal one of the more clever aspects of HB2, which is that they did something they knew was going to target people. I was born in Indiana, and in Indiana, to change your gender marker on your birth certificate, you have to go before a judge at the bench and request from him or her that you alter this document. So I have not been able to do that. You know, that requires going to Indiana. It requires paying the court fees to go before a judge, and Indiana being what it is, most likely being turned down, which they can do. They can just arbitrarily say no. 
So I have a driver's license that says I'm male. All my social security information reflects a male gender marker. And I look, if you just look at me, I have what, you know, I refer to as male passing privilege. You would see me and see a guy. My birth certificate, though, says Lisa Michelle and has a gender marker of female. So if someone were to touch me in a public restroom and inquire about my birth certificate, I would then have to tell the truth if I produced that document, and it would say that I was a female. But I'm not, really. And so where would I go, right? So one of the things that I would do when I would speak in public, because I believe I have a, as a person with male passing privilege, I have a responsibility to speak up about how ridiculous this is. If I went in the women's room, they would arrest me for being a predator. I mean, that would get me a sexual assault charge almost assuredly. I belong in the men's room. But if I go in there, at least under HB2, if I were to go in there, I would be violating the law because my birth certificate says that I'm female. And so I would intentionally do that. I would also go into public buildings and intentionally go in the men's room and break the law. And then I would call attention to that when I spoke to public officials and elected officials. And I think that that was pretty effective. And I think it's sad and it's quite a reflection on the way that we treat women in this culture, that the way for us to get this message is for trans men to stand up and say, do you want me in the women's room, right? There's a problem with that to begin with, right? And that is about misogyny and sexism and a whole bunch of other stuff. But I felt really strongly, and I still do, and a lot of the work I do is sometimes when I go speak at a place, they might not know ahead of time that I'm trans or that that's part of what I'm doing there. And so I reveal it in ways that I hope get people's attention because you don't necessarily read me as a trans guy when you meet me. I just look like a small guy. And I can imagine look on their faces saying, well, no, I don't want you to go into the wimp. Yeah. Wait, wait a minute. That, that must have been a really very confusing to them. Did you ever get any of them to just say, hell no, I don't want you to go into the woman's room? Actually, yes. At city council, our city council here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, at the proposal of Dan Bessie, one of our other elected council members, proposed a resolution statement to HB2, basically a sort of no-confidence vote, <laughs> you know, in saying that this is a problem. I was one of the people who showed up to speak with them about the resolution, and that was the first time that some of them met me. Some of them already knew me because of my work. So, I'm, you know, I made this announcement. under the I am a trans man, and my birth certificate says female because I was born in Indiana. Do you really want me in the women's room? And there was gasping of the people. The people there were people in the chamber who didn't know me and just saw me as this short guy, right? So there was like an audible gasp, and a couple of the council members were like, "No, thank you, Liam. Please don't go in that in that restroom." <laughs> I was like, "I don't want to go. I don't belong there, and I would not violate my sisters by going in there. That's not a place I belong. I didn't belong there the whole time I was growing up, but I didn't have any choice, you know." That leads me to a question that I've had, and again, this is one of those things where I think I'm probably walking on tender ground. I was born in 1954, so in the 60s and 70s, when I think women's liberation was doing some really wonderful things for this country, something that I bought into, still buy into, and I hold as one of my very high values is 
No one should be limited in what they achieve or are able to do in this country because of their gender. Mm -hmm. Okay, that sounds pretty good. Until I tried to wrap my mind around transgender issues, because one of the things I think that my strongly held belief means is if someone who identifies as a woman wants to wear a dress or pants, it's none of our business. You do what you want. If someone who identifies as a male wants to have long hair and wear lipstick, none of my business. It's their choice. So with that in mind, it seemed to me, if we really hold on to that, if we really believe that, then saying, well, do I have to do this and dress and act as this in order to be this? Now, you've obviously experienced this, Liam. You have what you identify as, and so clearly I think you've risked a fair amount of censure, probably from your family, from your friends, from all kinds of people, from the government in North Carolina, to clearly say, I am a male, and that means this to me. I look like this. I may be short, but I'm as male as you are. And so you've risked something to say something about the binary, I guess I'd say, which part of my belief is, screw it, get rid of the binary. So could you help bring me up to date? Because I think I'm kind of confused about this. It somehow kind of tears at my inner value. It's like, no, wait, I believe this, but then does that, but if that's important, but that's not important, I don't get it. Yeah, I think some days I don't get it either. <laughs> so... One of the things I sort of have in common with one of my friends and colleagues, Kate Bornstein, is that I figured out pretty quickly that even if I did this thing we call transition, and there are multiple ways to transition, and they don't always involve hormones or surgeries or name changes. Some people just transition in the sense that they begin to reveal their own inner self-understanding in a more authentic and more bold way, right? There are trans people who are not what we would think of as transsexuals, right? People who actually alter their bodies. And so I knew, though, that even if I did that, that I would not be male. There's a very clear understanding for me that I would not be male in the same way that perhaps you are or my brother is. And that there would be people in the world who would look at me and think I wasn't quite male like most of the males they know in the sense of what we think of as a cisgendered male, a person born with a certain anatomy and presumably a certain chromosomal structure who identifies with that anatomy and that body in the way that we have socially ascribed that. I'm not a cisgender male, and I don't have any intention of being, but I'm certainly not a cisgender female, and I never felt female in the sense that we understand that. And I never felt very comfortable with the feminine aspects of my body. Never did I. And so, you know, most children sexually differentiate somewhere between the ages of like 3 and 10, with the average being somewhere between 5 and 7. And around that time, for me, I started talking about being a boy. Well, that was, I was born in 63, so that was not a very, what we might think of as gender-evolved, environment to be doing that. And I was doing that here in the South, <laughs> can, right? Can you, can you say understatement? <laughs> yes, huge understatement. I'm prone to that, by the way. So, you know, I started talking about being a boy, and my parents were befuddled by that, and 
so was the culture. And, you know, we had some other stuff going on that was a little bit traumatic in our family. And so I got carted off to the psychiatrist, which their response to me was to convince me that I needed to accept that I was female. And they gave me some pretty potent medication to sort of help with that process and to under the auspices, too, of treating my depression, right, and just completely altered me. My entire personality changed, and the medication also psychiatrically dissociated me. You know, like there was a chemical dissociation of me to my own body, to most people, to sort of my daily life. I was very flattened, and it just altered my personality. And I did a very good job at accepting my brainwashing. I, I did a good job of at least, on some level, drinking the Kool-Aid and doing what I was told. And a lot of that is because of those intuitive lessons you get that aren't concrete like 2 plus 2 equals 4 or learning your multiplication tables, you know. But I learned not everyone who says they're going to help you is going to help you. If you say certain things, it gets you in trouble. So keep your thoughts to yourself if they go against the grain. You can't necessarily trust everybody. But I also learned really negative self-messages, like that there was something wrong with me, that I wasn't put together enough or smart enough or equipped enough to understand myself, to have a sensible and meaningful self-understanding, and that somehow the world thought I needed others to tell me who I was. So I learned self-doubt was kind of just a way of being and constantly having to question and re-examine and pull things apart. And my memory was impaired by the medication they gave me. So that by the time they took the medication away, I had already learned how to completely just detach from everything, my feelings, my body, people, and I just sort of went along in a fog. But I also looked very much like a little boy. I built muscle like a little boy. I preferred to wear my hair short, and I, you know, was just a very, I had a, facial features and other sort of physical markers that were rather androgynous, you know, depending on what you put on me. If you put a dress on me, I looked like a pretty boyish little girl. If you put shorts and a t-shirt and some treads on me, I looked like a pretty little boy, you know. And so I never understood myself to be female the way my girlfriends were girls, you know what I mean? So I'm definitely not female. But I'm certainly not male in the sense that we're used to thinking of that or that we've been conditioned culturally and religiously and socially to think of men and women. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with the fact that now my voice sounds more like it's always sounded in my head. When I look in a mirror, what I see is a little more chiseled than I used to be, and there's some things missing now. I don't have breasts anymore, and thankfully I never had a lot there, but, you know, I look in the mirror now, and I see what I've always seen when I look at myself, and therefore, the world is a safer place for me, and it's much more easy for me to face the world and to be open and to be in human relationship, which was something that my treatment around my gender robbed me of. It was very, very difficult for me to be in relationship with myself, let alone other people, and transition gave me back relationality. It gave me back an ability to be vulnerable and transparent like I'm being with you now and be open to myself and allowed me to do the rest of the work on me that I wasn't able to do until this point in my life. You know, I had done all the pop psychology on myself I could do, you know, and I had 
I had gone as far as I could go, like I was, and then just couldn't go anymore and had to make a change. And that and that other part doesn't help you. So so to say too that is the confounding thing for all of us is that we live in a world where we have confused likeness with sameness, where to have things in common means to be just like one another. And we have compressed humanity and our understanding of what it means to be human to these contrived absolutes that are oppressive and troublesome to all of us, right? There are over 62,000 species of grass alone. There are over 10,000 species of birds. But we say, despite the evidence of human birth throughout history, that there's only two ways to be a human being. And it's that framework that messes us up, I think. Well, since you bring up the fact that you, as a chaplain, have some religious identification, and, you know, they see you as a preacher. Now, they they were probably thinking Baptist preacher. (laughs) Yeah. They were not thinking UCC, United Church of Christ, uh, which obviously has different assumptions, uh, of course, along a spectrum. But I have to say I am so grateful that the president of the board of Northern Spirit Radio David Huber is a UCC minister. His help in Northern Spirit Radio's work is just so invaluable. I'm so thankful that he's brought his religious office and his theological understanding and everything to the nurture of this work. So I have to say that up front. UCC in the Winston-Salem area of North Carolina must evidently also have something along the spectrum that was not expected by some Baptists. I think there are liberal Baptists as well. But one of the things I note is that you are Minister of Welcome and Beyond for Parkway UCC. So tell me what a Minister of Welcome and Beyond is, because I've never seen that title before. Yeah, I mean, I'm likely to again. (laughs) What's wonderful about Parkway is that I'm actually not paid staff. They called me and ordained me to do this work that I've been doing in community across North Carolina and into South Carolina and sometimes wherever else I can go because they saw that as essential ministry that was consistent with the mission and the ministry of Parkway United Church of Christ. So what they do is they donate me space and they give me in-kind support. So like I have an office space, I can do worship services there if I would like and I can I do my LGBT Bible study there which is a very active and pluralistic group of folks, that, you know, it's only LGBT folks that are allowed in that space. That's space for us. They really give me an enormous amount of support for this thing that I call Ministries Beyond Welcome. So to be the Minister of Welcome and Beyond is to be the person who kind of continues to sort of take a stick and poke it at what our understanding of Christian welcome is, What does radical welcome mean? What does hospitality mean? How do we do that in community? So I'm a congregation of the world kind of guy rather than congregation of the building kind of guy. And I'm all about the liturgy of the world. So what does it mean to be welcoming beyond opening the doors? So we might say, oh, whoever you are, wherever you are on life's journey, you're welcome here. But what does that mean in practice? And so one of the things that I do is I work with and consult with and do education with other faith groups around these ideas of welcoming the stranger. 
and welcoming the outcast. And what does the gospel say about that? What does the Hebrew text say about that, that Jesus picked up on, being Jesus was a Jew, which some Christians sometimes forget? You know, what do these texts say about welcome, about hospitality, and about grace? And what does this mean to love your neighbor? What does it look like? That's what I do, and I do it with faith groups all over and various kinds of faith groups. I'm as likely to be invited to the local temple as I am to be invited to a Baptist church or a UCC. But then I also do this in a very secular way. So I'll go train staff at the local shelter, right? How do, how do we make LGBTQ people safe and welcome in this space? And then beyond that, I do a lot of spiritual direction kind of work and spiritual growth-based work and what we might think of as spiritual reconciliation with LGBTQ folks. I've been doing some deep work around group spiritual discernment, which you might enjoy as a Quaker, (laughs) based on the Quaker model of clearness committees and Parker Palmer's idea of circles of trust. We've been doing some deep work with the elders at a church here in town that's predominantly LGBTQ-based, and they're looking at making some changes in how they do things, and so I've been facilitating some of that. I do the LGBT Bible study, certain kinds of sort of like Vespers groups where we look at and play with various ways to worship. So it's all about beyond the doors, I think, and beyond the walls of the building, but also beyond simply saying you're welcome here. What does all that mean in terms of really being in community with one another and learning to be in relationship with each other and with the Holy One among us? Well, one of the things that you mentioned to me before, Liam, and again, folks, you want to track Liam down. Maybe you're in the Winston-Salem area of North Carolina or somewhere in a wide orbit around there, and you want Liam to come speak to your folks. And he can help, I think, widen your community and your welcome. After all, he is Minister of Welcome and Beyond for Parkway United Church of Christ in Winston-Salem. If you go to his website, liammichaelhooper.com, can't spell that, come by org. we have a link. One of the things that it says on your website, Liam, is that you live in the Deep South with your wife, Diana, a freelance publishing professional who keeps his calendar in line, that's a sweet thing to have, (laughs) and their teenage son who keeps them on their toes. So evidently your toes are in good shape. You told me when I was talking to you in a previous phone call, your story of how things worked out with Diana is perhaps interesting to our audience. So you haven't told me yet. So what is it? What what happened? How does this work? It's like a lifetime movie kind of thing. So I went away to Philadelphia to go to art school, which at the time, a more college of art, which at the time was one of the few remaining all women's, all art schools left in the country, and I turned 21 within, like, the first couple weeks of classes, but I walked in the dorm that day. First-year people had to live in the dorm. That was kind of the deal, even though I was going to be turning 21, so they made me stay till I could come up with another plan. So I walked in to check into the dorm, and there was this cute little person behind the desk. I told her what my name was, and immediately she goes, you're from North Carolina, aren't you? And then, you know, being all suave, and I said, what, does it say that on your little paper there? <laughs> you know? So 
She's like, no, I wouldn't have that accent anywhere, even though I've lived so many places that my southern accent isn't like other people's. But anyway, I do have one. And she recognized it, and we became friends. And within like a couple of weeks, we were at least what you might euphemistically refer to as dating. And it turned out Diana had grown up in Greensboro, about 20-some miles away from where I lived, and we had been in similar circles and never met one another. So we both go to school in Philadelphia and meet each other there. And she just, there was something about Diana that got under my skin. You know, I mean, I just, I licked her. And we were like the best of friends, and we would date each other between other people we were dating, and we just stayed friends, thankfully, because I was still, I was not yet sober, and we were young, you know, we wouldn't have really just screwed it up. And so we stayed friends and, you know, listened to each other's woes through our relationships with other people, and, you know, we just stayed friends. I remember when Lucas, Lucas was a donor baby, you know, and there were inseminations to make Lucas, and I remember when he was born, I had, I'm still good friends with his other mother. So Diana and I were friends. And in 2009, I was doing some work with a friend of mine who needed help with his landscaping business. And my phone had a message on it, and I answered the message, and it was Diana. We hadn't talked to each other in a few years because I had had a bad end to my primary relationship. I changed my phone and my email and all my bank information. You know, it was just a, it was a lot of stuff. So we sort of lost track of each other, and I had been looking for Diana. And she just called me out of blue. I don't know how she found me. She Googled me somehow. And we started talking, and we were both single again. And I'd been single for almost four years. And realized, you know, that we weren't done with each other yet. And that was an ongoing story. And I'm sorry, Mark, I'm getting a little messy. (laughs) So we would talk like every night. At the time, Diana was living in Marlboro in Massachusetts and doing freelance work with some pretty big publishing houses. And so I would go up there every month and we would visit for a while. And then in 2010, we moved her and Lucas down here. And the rest is sort of history after that. We had a big old gay wedding in 2011 that in North Carolina was a big act of civil disobedience because we could not legally marry here. So it was just this big commitment ceremony that we made a big deal out of. And we were doing marriage equality work with um, the Campaign for Southern Equality and their We Do campaign. So we did that for several years to beat down Amendment 1. And we would go to the counter to register of deeds and request a marriage license for, you know, for few years we knowing we were going to get denied the same as couples did the we do campaign all throughout the south it was really wonderful work and it was wonderful to do that with this person who is my soulmate you know who i'm just not ever going to be done with <laughs> and thankfully thankfully diana i don't think he's ever going to be done with me so you know she supported me through this transition she knew it wasn't a surprise to her at all that I needed to do this, and it's just been really wonderful. So we try to protect our son a lot because he's 16. We try to protect him a lot from what I do, and he thinks we don't need to protect him, but we feel like we do. You know, it's one thing for me to absorb danger out in the world. It's another thing for me to ask him to do that, and and so I don't. So when I go speak to places and that kind of thing, he does not go with us. We really try to just let him have a normal teenagehood a normal life as much as possible. 
although he's, you know, in his own way, he's a little justice worker, too. But he's a marvelous young man. He's like every teenager. You know, he's still working his stuff out. But he's a good young man, and he's certainly very patient with us. And he does keep us on our toes. Teenagers will do that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's good you have some trainee. I mean, it's kind of, I, I think having children is its own form of boot camp keeping you on your toes. Yeah. I'm glad you've got someone working on you, keeping you going. You, well, you know, Liam, there's more we could talk about. We haven't even touched on the organization you founded, GRASP, Gender Revisioning and Sexuality Pathways, but people are going to follow up on this by going to your website, liammichaelhooper.com. As always, the links are on nordenspiritradio.org. Liam Hooper is the Minister of Welcome and Beyond at Parkway United Church of Christ in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Former mental health practitioner, works as chaplain, he speaks widely. There's a lot of wonderful things you can find about him if you go to his website. He's a trans educator for radical faith and justice. There's just so much good being done there. And it's not what you normally hear about when you think about North Carolina these days. So I'm so thankful that you're on the ground there. You and Diana and your son are providing a bubble of love, inclusion, and welcome beyond the norm. Thank you for doing that. And thank you for taking this time to speak with us today for Spirit in Action. Thank you. It has been a joy to be with you. And I hope we'll I'll put out some more conversation over time. I really, really am grateful for your attention to my work and your support and the spirit of this conversation. I felt very welcomed and celebrated, and I'm grateful for that. Thank you again, Liam. I've so loved talking with Liam that we can't fit all of it into our broadcast. So we'll put two choice bonus excerpts up on the NordenSpiritRadio.org website, one about the experience of transitioning into male privilege and the other about Liam's finding of his spouse and their teenage son. So remember to check those out. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance today, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.